to be with you again, Center Podcast listeners. Well, we begin a new series this week um, where we will have conversations with um, various uh, teachers and leaders within Center uh, who will focus on areas of interest and expertise. Uh, this week, it's it's just me again. But uh, in the future, we will be hearing um, from uh, several voices who will be addressing all kinds of uh, interesting topics as we move through uh, what's left of our summer, quite a bit left anyway. Today, i uh, going to be talking about um, the topic of fatherhood, which is one um, that is it's such a big, um, big conversation that obviously we'll only be addressing a few kind of narrow ways of thinking about this. But uh, we have, it's been, it's been a long time coming. We've had uh, we've had people ask us to touch on this topic, and I'm very glad to do so. Um, it's high time we've dealt with it in one way or another. So I'll reference the um, sources along the way, um, short stories by Jesus by uh, Levine. Some of you remember remember me mentioning her every single week as we were going through the parables. Um, we'll deal with more of Smith's On the Road, um, Clara Asuji. Uh, fatherhood and the literary imagination will also uh, be a resource among a few others. So it's, it's, this has been a hard message to put together um, because there's such a wide range of experience um, around this thick, complex topic, a topic like fatherhood. Everyone's experience with their fathers um, is unique and and it's really hard to speak to all of those experiences, impossible to do so. And additionally, there's always this balance, um, always trying to balance the idea that we should think of God. So, so of course, we should think of God as Father. Uh, but that needs to be balanced against this other truth, which is, to, which is that we should not think of God concretely as any specific Father. Um, it, it's, it's okay and, in fact, good to identify attributes of being a father or a mother and, and in those positive attributes see that behind those or through them is God the Father. But analogous language has its limitations, and there are these risks that we run when we try to put too much weight on any one way of, of thinking about God. And also there, there are conversations, another, another kind of part of this is that there are conversations that need to be had about mothers, uh, the ways in which they stand in analogous relationships to God, the, the ways in which motherhood stands as an analogous relationship, the ways in which we need to navigate these relationships and the complexities and shortcomings that go along with them. However, uh, to talk about one thing, to talk about fatherhood isn't to devalue these other parts of the conversation. And so more, hopefully, on those topics to come. But for this teaching, I want to begin with um, some insights from the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. It's a, it's a very useful resource. And 
I want to begin with this frame, which is Fathers in the Bible. Um, and this is much of this is a resource from Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. Fathers in the Bible are a paradigm of the human condition. Okay, so fathers in the in the Bible are a paradigm of the human condition. So I think it'll be useful, kind of by way of what context introduction, to quickly just move through the ways in which um, the imagery of the father in the Bible communicate to us. And one of the most interesting takeaways from this short article um, on uh, in the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery is. Um, that is the way in which the imagery of father actually provides a microcosm for all of biblical theology. The tenets of this theology and imagery are, they're fairly straightforward. Here they are. Here are the three. Number one, fatherhood is an ideal created for good by God. Fatherhood is an ideal created for good by God. Uh, this leads to number two, which is the reality of fatherhood. So fatherhood is, is depicted as this ideal it's it we shouldn't hope to see it disappear right we shouldn't hope to see it marginalized we want to see it um realized in its in all of its potential so there's actually a lot built in to that first point but it leads to number two which is the reality of fatherhood what we see in our own fathers and the fathers we ourselves become and partner with um, this reality has fallen far short of the ideal and so you know in the simple in these simple three points of of biblical theology, there's something very useful. The fact that the reality of fatherhood has been so disappointing for so many people um, shouldn't, at a, a kind of, I suppose, an in an experiential way, right, overshadow uh, this other thing, which is that that fatherhood is actually good. Um, and, and most of us would say that it is, but do we really, depending on our experience, it might be very hard to believe that. Number three, God is the perfect father neither fully like any one of our fathers, but at once able to redeem our failures and the failures of this ideal that none of us meet. Um, and it says little to say that none of us meet this, this ideal of fatherhood. Um, no one is a perfect parent or a perfect father. Um, some people are missing it more than others, and that would be uh, an understatement. It's also interesting because while there are around uh, still thinking through this article, um, while there are around 1,000 references to fatherhood, no explicit teaching on how to be a father. Not really. Uh, how, how to in the Bible we do not find on fatherhood. Further, one might begin to make the argument that we find more examples of deeply flawed portraits of the father um, in the Bible than we do of exemplars. And that's uh, than we do exemplars. And that's kind of interesting. Um, there are, and we'll get into these, there are statements in, like, in Proverbs and Psalms. There are um, teachings and parables by Jesus, statements by Paul that, that kind of draw these broad um, outlines of what healthy and good fatherhood might look like, but far from a detailed description. So we are given maybe general commands for how to think about fathers. Uh, many of these apply to mothers as well and equally. In fact, it's, you're, you'll be hard-pressed to find any that don't. So a few, for example, religious instruction, Proverbs, uh, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Fathers here portrayed as teachers, as well as in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Fathers are portrayed as relying on Jesus for the needs of their children. Matthew chapter 17 
uh, verse 14 is, is I think, one very um, powerful example of this. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son. He said, he has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. What a wonderful, I mean, it's, you know, anyone who has children already understands it's, you know, there's a sensitivity to children suffering um, regardless, but I think it's exacerbated. It's, it's enhanced when you magnify, when you have children and you see here um, a man approaching Jesus and whatever your kind of cultural um, constructs of masculinity look like, this is a man who is um, begging, um, pleading, and, and, and willing to reveal his need. So we have, these are, these are um, portraits that we would, these are portraits that we would want to emulate. John chapter four, verses 46 forward. Um, once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, referring to Jesus, where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. I mean, sermons have been written on these, of course, and um, a lot could be said about them. Um, you see a reliance in Christ, a reliance on Jesus, a trust in Jesus. You see, um, again, a picture of masculinity, which is not about ego or power, but about reliance. You see love and compassion and provision in something like Matthew chapter 7, um, where it talks about a father never giving his children stones or snakes. So there's this, this sense of care and provision and feeding. You know, Jesus asking um, for uh, God the Father to give us our daily bread, right? But the failures, the so, so, I mean, there's, a, there's, you know, start off uh, on a happy note. But the failures, Adam, you know, I don't know, original sin, what, what else shall we say? Uh, David offers the illustration of the failures of father, uh, as well as anyone you can find in any literature, ancient or modern. Uh, here's uh, E. Bland on David's failures. It is not difficult to imagine the destructive emotional and relational dynamics that must have plagued David's family during the tragedy of Tamar's rape and the subsequent killing of her assailant and half-brother Amnon by her brother Absalom. The powerful needs and expressions of rage in this narrative evoke enough, uh, evoke both sorrow and outrage, authenticating the scriptural portent that sins of the father will be visited upon the children. I mean, he goes on. Amnon's lustful and violent betting of Tamar echoes their father, David's scandalous, um, uh, scandalous affair with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband to cover the crime. Unified in their unhinged passion, both father and son give play to their desire beyond reasonable boundaries. There are so many ways to think about this idea that the sins of the father are visited upon the children. Again, to discuss that is outside the, the conversation, the teaching today. But what we see here is in the failure of David, something as profound as anything you'll find.
Other examples of love without wisdom. Abraham favors Isaac. Isaac favors Esau. Jacob favors Joseph. And it goes on. Or I think a very um, interesting illustration for our moment. King Saul's temper separates him from his children. In the New Testament, there is this critique of the power leveraging husband and father, right? The um, Ephesians chapter six says, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is, this is a, this is a critique of, of a trend that we saw within um, evangelical certain, certain, certain circles of evangelical Christianity for quite some time, kind of this, this, um, I, I saw, I don't know, this caricatured cartoonish attempt to be masculine, right? I mean, let's go, you know, like it's, it's, it's boxing. It's necessarily boxing and guns or something like that. I mean, this, you know, it's, it's having power in a, in a very specific narrow kind of way. Um, of course, probably that movement was reacting to something before it that was attempting to, um, make Jesus something he wasn't also, but, but still yet it's, I mean, you, you see these kind of pendulum moves and taking the Bible seriously, reading more than you speak probably helps to avoid that problem. But a lot of people could have, a lot of uh, families would have been healthier through that era when some of those voices were at their loudest um, to have, they would have been um, wise to remember Ephesians six, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't provoke your children to anger. Don't leverage power. There's no need. Um, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Um, or the Homer Simpson motif. Uh, perhaps I, I loathe this one as uh, pro- this is too, Homer Simpson is too old a to reference. I don't know what uh, we should we should reference now. Is Family Guy is too old a to reference? I mean, what what works now? I mean, so this unwise, intellectually or morally lazy father. These fathers might be characterized by significant indulgences and in uh, passive anger. Abraham is upset but inactive when Hagar and Ishmael leave. Jacob disapproves but is inactive concerning the rape of Dinah and the revenge taken by his sons or maybe all of Noah's weirdness post-flood. Um, I think that's Genesis 9. Um, and, you know, again, a whole sermon could be devoted to that. But there, we have other just failures in the Bible unwise, intellectually, and morally lazy people, um, morally lazy fathers. It's disappointing and frustrating. And we see iterations of it now. Um, you know, and, and, and again, I, I'm trying to keep time in mind and remain disciplined. I just want to underscore this, you know, these trends where <clears throat> men are spending more time on a golf course um, than reading um, serious, serious authors, than thinking and working through problems that matter to make their communities better, to make their families better. It's all about acquiring and consuming and being entertained. I mean, that is not um, that is not uh, th- that is not the recipe. Those are not the ingredients of a good father. That is um, amateur hour. It's immature. It's really pathetic, in fact. And so we see that. We don't see golf featuring. I'm not trying to – I mean, it's okay to enjoy a sport, but you understand my point. Um, we, we, we see 
features of this kind of profile throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament particularly. All this is to say that the authors of the Bible seem to also be aware of our problem now, uh, which is a good dad is hard to find. Of course, these are all contrasts to how we approach and understand God the Father. God is compassionate. Psalm 103. He care he carries, he carries us and he care takes for us. He takes he takes care of us. He is our caretaker and he carries us along. Um, Deuteronomy chapter one is an amazing um, chapter on this. He provides for us. Matthew six, he enjoys us. He disciplines. He gives true bread. And we could go on. There are, for all of the negative um, portrayals of fathers in the Old and New Testament, um, overshadowing that really is this ongoing representation of what um, a good father, a good parent looks like. Well, uh, that's just a bit of groundwork for us um, as we get into essentially three observations. We're going to talk about um, a rejection, an adoption, and an embodiment. So a rejection, an adoption, and an embodiment. The first is this. It's a rejection of enfeebled um, and commodified portraits of fatherhood. The first is a rejection, a rejection of enfeebled and commodified portraits of fatherhood. There is a great piece that's written by Clara uh, Osuji, and I think I'm getting her name correct, where she analyzes the ways in which Toni Morrison marginalizes the fatherhood motif, um, the, the, the role of the father in both The Bluest Eye and Beloved. Um, and Osuji um, brings in a number of scholars, but hits in some very interesting um, notes in this. She observes how, in the case of Morrison, fathers are either enfeebled or commodified. And this is true in, in the case of Morrison's work, of course, because of uh, slavery and racism. So here, commodification um, is defined as the social process of rendering something capable of being bought or sold in the market. Thus, the derivative term commodified, as utilized in this essay, relates to the idea of making something into a commodity, oftentimes at the expense of its innate value. So you have um, in... Suji's piece, this notion that Morrison recognizes the ways in which um, fathers are commodified, they're made into something that can be into a commodity, a thing that can be owned, and therefore their innate value is lost, maybe even to themselves. And for this reason, in Morrison, um, we really see um, the attention turn to the role of the woman and to motherhood and so on. Morrison is clearly and narrowly dealing with the consequences of slavery and racism. The piece is fascinating, and I think it has far-reaching implications, which in fact include and extend beyond race. And that's what um, warrants some attention in this conversation around fatherhood more broadly across, across race. Look how the godly values a compassion, caretaking, provision, wisdom, generosity, time, 
have all been hijacked by a society filled with men who are told their worth as a parent, as a father, is defined by how much they are able to acquire and what status they are able to achieve. And this is another and notably very different sort of commodification. So Morrison is, is uh, you know, as always, I mean, saying so many interesting things through these fascinating characters and, um, you know, through the beauty of her writing. But this idea that commodification, that there, there, there is something to this, that commodification really is damaging fathers across our culture because these other things that are valuable often um, are put on the chopping block because it may be hard to be fully compassionate, to be wise, to give time to your children and at once um, make a certain number of dollars per year. Of course, um, making a living, having a career, I'm not in any way criticizing that. Uh, that is a part of provision, um, and it's a part of caretaking, and it's good. Work is good. It's not a critique of work. Rather, it's a critique of the ways in which social status um, is certain types of status are are forced upon fathers, forced upon men. And we should join together in affirming, not just through lip service, but actually through our own homes and hearts, that great fathers are not actually willing to sell all of their time merely to signal to our culture that they are real men and good dads. And that is where we see this um, thesis of commodification extending uh, through American culture. And it's, it's also, it's clearly um, a problem that extends beyond American culture as well. And we can affirm this, by the way, by helping each other out whenever, uh, when, where, whenever we can and as much as possible. I mean, let's work together so we can do good for those who need it and therein recognize the innate value we have even when we don't make six figures or pull off the expensive car or the private university or whatever. One of the reasons that one of the ways in which I think fatherhood is under assault. And again, I would say that this is not narrowly, this doesn't narrowly apply to fathers. This is both, you know, moms and dads. But one of the ways in which fatherhood is, I think, um, under, under, under serious threat is this idea that, that the, the, the good father is the one that has a certain uh, size home or lives in a certain neighborhood and or or again drives a certain kind of thing and if you talk to those people um and i'm sure many of you know these people often they're underneath that there's this you know these things will go to my children right like this is a form of provision it's a form of caretaking and i think we are uh i think we're just lying to ourselves about what actual provision looks like and and the ways in which we're trying to satisfy something else. So the um, famous American writer, Paul Oster, uh, Smith quotes Oster, 
Uh, and uh, this is from his memoir, The Invention of Solitude. He talks about uh, this, this deep need for time, for children to have time with their dads. From the very beginning, it seems, I was looking for my father, looking frantically for anyone who resembled him. It was not that I felt he disliked me. It was just that he seemed distracted, unable to look in my direction. And more than anything else, I wanted him to take notice of me. When the family once went to a crowded restaurant on a Sunday and we had to wait for our table, my father took me outside, produced a tennis ball from where, put a penny on the sidewalk and proceeded to play a game with me. Hit the penny with the tennis ball. In retrospect, nothing could have been more trivial. And yet the fact that I had been included, that my father had casually asked me to share his boredom with him, nearly crushed me with happiness. I'm from the invention of solitude. The gift of time and attention. Yes, provide, of course, for your families. Yes, that's part of what it is to be a parent. It's certainly part of what it is to be a father. Um, but it's so obvious that many fathers choose to leave their families, not through divorce, and why they're leaving and what they're leaving is, a, is I suppose, like it, it probably this is just not the not a productive way to have that kind of conversation. But the way they leave is not not through a divorce and it's not like by leaving the state or something. The way they leave is by working. Um, not for a season, not toward a specific end and then it will stop, but for the whole thing. And there's a lack of balance there. And I think that that should be, uh, it's attributed, we could attribute this to many things that at minimum, there's something about the commodification, the commodification that's happening here that about selling ourselves and not in the, not in the entirely horrifically unique way that we see in, uh, through, um, slavery, through the Jim Crow, um, south through uh, ongoing racism, but rather in this other kind of way, we give all of our time to institutions that are not even built to under to, built to appreciate it. Meanwhile, uh, the family waits. So, number one, uh, there is we need to reject the enfeebled and commodified portraits of fatherhood that uh, at any number of levels we have been encouraged to embrace. Number two uh, is an adoption, meaning icons of the father. Number two is about, number one is about a rejection. Number two, an adoption, meeting icons of the father. Um, this is where the via negativa becomes very relevant. God is like a father, but put more accurately, any good you see in either your mother or father is only an approximation to the one true good, capital G good, that is in God. For every way, even the best biological father is an icon of God, there are myriad ways 
not least of which ontological, this wonderful father cannot be God. Even the best fathers, of course, are not God. And this is all the more true for the dads that fall so short. By understanding God by the things God isn't, we are less likely to make God into an idol. And then less likely to hate the idol for not being God and to hate ourselves for not pleasing the idol. And if any of that strikes you as obvious or unnecessary, um, you, you need only look at the decisions you have made. So, I mean, speaking to, you know, obviously, you know, if this is, if this applies to you, but we all have seen dynamics where children are attempting to satisfy um, a father that will not be satisfied because um, that that father uh, is not serving his role in the way that he should. He's simply falling short. And, and that child who might be an adult or might be, you know, an adolescent or whatever, that child is not in the position to see that or maybe understands it but can't re- Imagine the relationship in a way that is that is healthier, and and these are not people to judge. I mean, this is something to to, to lovingly like guide people away from. But by understanding that that even the best fathers fail, we actually give ourselves room and protect ourselves against the likelihood of building an idol, which will absolutely disappoint us. Instead. So to contrast the kind of idol that we make out of good and bad fathers, instead, uh, the, this, is the, this is Smith's language, instead the icons of the father may be your actual biological dads. They may be other people. And I know this is unusual. It may even, may even be hard to uh, embrace this or even confusing, but every father and every mother, for that matter, is a surrogate. This is more of Smith's idea, carrying the love of God for other human beings, which are ultimately and fully in God's care. Uh, direct quote here from On the Road. Incarnational, and uh, there is an incarnational nature of the grace of God who gives us surrogates like sacramental echoes of his own love. Indeed, to be adopted by this father is to be enfolded in a new household where family is redefined and bloodlines transcended by the genealogy of grace. That is not just poetic or happy language. Um, there, is, there is insightful and useful information being communicated here. We all are prone to make idols out of the people that we have come to love and respect. We are also prone to make idols out of uh, our, the, the people that have, have damaged us the most. The contrast is the icon of the father. And one of the ways we can begin to be whole and heal um, from fathers who have at very, to very degrees missed the mark is to look for icons of fatherhood. To continue the quote, maybe navigating the tragedy and heartbreak of this fallen world is realizing this hunger might not be met 
might not be met by the ones we expect or hope will come looking for us. The exact person that you want to that you want to care for you when your father has failed is your father. And there's really no substitute, at least experientially at first, there's no way to resolve that need. But what Smith is encouraging is being born new. And in that newness, with the Spirit of God guiding you, supporting you, with God carrying you, in that newness, begin to meet and open your heart to the fathers that God would have for you. This hunger might not be met by the ones we expect or hope will come looking for us, but then meeting a father who adopts you, who chooses you, who sees you a long way off and comes running and says, I've been waiting for you. That father, and I, I mean now actually quite, um, I mean, people, there are people who will be fathers to you in these important ways, or there can be. And these are icons of God, the father. They are pointing to the, the perfect uh, and the good. Um, and those of you who have wonderful fathers, part of the reason that you're, if in fact this is the case, part of the reason that your father is so wonderful is that your father, uh, whether he would articulate it or not, understands that his role is to point to the good, the goodness, the complete good, the fullness, true love, life, and light, the trueness that is God. And, but, but mainly I'm interested in those who have suffered the loss of an absent father, which looks like many things. Um, and we can be, we can remain hopeful and encouraged that there are actually people there saying, um, I, I chose you. I see you. I've been waiting for you. So number one uh, is a rejection. Number two, <clears throat> number two is an adoption. Number three is an embodiment. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost son uh, for this final, final point. Jesus continues. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fat, fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, uh, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The older brother certainly takes a moment to reference the prostitutes. Um, uh, verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But, he, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I mean, what more is the most, probably one of the most well-known, popular, um, taught, preached on, analyzed parables in um, probably all of it, certainly all of ancient literature, maybe all of literature. And there's so many ways to think about this parable. Clearly, uh, the the centerpiece of the teaching um, for this episode is not this parable, or we would have started there, and we could easily spend much time on it. Um, I just want to I want to say a few things uh, informed by Levine. Okay, first, just briefly, there are so many misunderstandings and super popular but mistaken teachings about this parable. A few of those. No, it probably wasn't an insult for the son to ask for his inheritance early. I know that that's something like that preaches very well. I know that some of you probably have um, favorite speakers, teachers, pastors that have taught that um, at some point. I probably have taught that at some point. It preaches so well, but probably not an insult. It, it, maybe at best it's slightly inconsiderate, but it's, and then we could get into that, but, but not an insult. No, what exactly caused the son's downfall is in fact not clear. Levine notes how much culture plays a role in our interpretation of this. Um, she references um, one, one uh, person noting that prayer in public school might have solved um, this, this prodigal son's issue. Had, you know, got kind of obviously not, not, not literally that, but like this is, this is the thing to keep the prodigal from becoming prodigal, right? Better parenting maybe. Lack of generosity. Another interesting one. Lack of generosity on the part of the neighbors, right? This, this, this son would not be... Um, starving and um, desperate for for pods um, that are being given to the pigs. If if people, if his neighbors, wherever he is, had been generous to him. Um, another very interesting read is that this is really more about a famine, um, and that's where the suffering of the, the the downfall of the sun comes from. And it does indicate that. I mean, who knows? The parable is the parable is not about how the Old Testament God was just very angry all the time, but the New Testament God uh, is great. God is love. God is love in and before the Hebrew Bible. God is love now. 
God is love in the New Testament as well. Um, this strange thing that happens when we divide is this kind of um, attempt to malign what we see of God in the Hebrew Bible in an attempt to make Jesus um, more more beautiful, more captivating, um, more more provocative. In reality, God has always been love, and that's not what's happening in this parable. No, we cannot know if the son, maybe one of the more popular ones is that we cannot know if the son is sincere. I'm personally in the no camp on the son being sincere, but really, who knows? It probably is more the text reading us. We can't really know that. There are ways to organize the, the data to make the case, but we don't know. And no, it's probably not about Jesus coming home from earth. Cool, read. And I love Henry Nouwen as much as anyone, but probably that's not it either. And we could talk a lot about the parable, but what's actually going on in this parable as it pertains to fatherhood, as it pertains to embodiment. Here's Levine. Recognize that the one you have lost may be right in your own household. It may be a child, but it may be also, it may also be your own father. Recognize that the one you have lost may be right in your own household. If we can just suspend our evaluations of this parable for a moment, there's actually some really useful insight on, on being a father and on fatherhood, whether you are a father or not. Sometimes the person that's lost is right there. Do whatever it takes, says Levine, do whatever it takes to find the lost and then celebrate with others, both so that you can share the joy and so that the others will help prevent the recovered from being lost again. So insightful. Do whatever it takes to find the lost and then celebrate with others. Don't wait until you receive an apology. You may never get one. As we think about fatherhood, some of you may never, for various reasons, you may, you may never get an apology. I hope you do. But don't wait on that. You might wait your entire life. You may never get an apology. Don't wait until you can muster the ability to forgive. Says Levine, you may never find it. Don't wait until you can muster the ability to forgive. You may never find it. Don't stew in your sense of being ignored. For there is nothing that can be done to retrieve the past. Number three is about embodiment. Christ-likeness. My estimation is that many of the people who listen to this podcast, uh, I mean, obviously some of whom I know, probably many of whom I know, many of the people who listen to this podcast, your, your relationships with your fathers, with your dads, are far from perfect. And they're even, I would imagine many are far from healthy. Some are as unhealthy as they can be. Embodying Christ. It's, it, you know, don't wait until you can muster the ability to forgive. You may never in fact find it. 
And here's a few, few insights from me on this parable. The father is about to lose his boy. And it is so hard to wait on people to come home. And sometimes the person you are waiting on is your dad. I'm not saying that you should call them if, if they're, you know, a total villain. I'm not trying to, you know, make these kind of sweeping commentaries that I, it's just not a place to make. I'm not saying you should submit yourself to abuse. And abuse uh, can look like many things. There are many reasons you may not be the person who does the precise kingdom work of resolving your dad's issues. That's entirely, entirely possible. I'm not saying that. Rather, I'm asking us to engage in, in a kind of thought experiment that also I think serves as, as kind of prayer. I'm asking, can you bring yourself to pretend can you, can you begin by pretending that your father um, is, isn't perfect, but is as you wished he would have been? And can you make the step from that to bringing yourself to imagine that your father could become the kind of father you know um, he should be. And in that imagining, are you able to take a step into something like a prayer that where, where you begin to see the possibility that your father could become the person that you know he might be? Is there room there for hope? So, you know, there's a reason I think that we prefer the concrete or the sensory when it comes to literature, but in a sermon, abstract uh, abstractions are sometimes better because sometimes it's just, it's really too hard to go there as it pertains to ourselves. You know, in literature, we're able to allow, to allow in many ways the text to read us, we're able to explore these hard things through the lives and circumstances of other people, you know, characters, right? But in these contexts, when it's, when it's you and you're actually placing yourself there, uh, it, it can be at times too hard to hope. And, and I'm no judgment there. But to embody Jesus, to embody, this, to, to have the spirit in us uh, is to leave room for hope. So uh, here's a prayer you might Consider, so to, to those uh, podcast listeners whose, dad, whose dads are swinging for the fences, who are, who are not perfect but doing really, really tremendous jobs, truly, glory to God for that, really. That's how critical it is. Glory to God for that. Take the time. Let's celebrate it. That's good. And to those of you who have had a hard time of it, or a really, really hard time of it. There are icons of the Father. Men who God has or will give you, who will, if given the chance, both see you, 
know you and will, not in spite of anything about you, but in fact, with clarity about who you are, they will love you. Sometimes the best thing you can do, whether you see yourself on the path to forgiving your dad or not, is to keep your heart open to these icons of the Father and allow healing to come in through a different door. And to those of you who have had a hard time of things with your dads, there are men, there are fathers who will stay. They aren't going anywhere. You can be yourself because in fact, they are not secretly looking for the exit. Uh, McCarthy's The Road will close with this final um, bit of literary insight. The child was his warrant. He said, If his is not the word of God, God never spoke. Each the other's world entire. So, may you have a father like that. Blessing Center, we'll talk again next week.